Section 15 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, July 2012. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1b, Section 15, Chapter 13, Part 7. In this general rout of the army, Wallace's military skill and presence of mind enabled him to keep his troops entire, and retiring behind the Carron, he marched leisurely along the banks of that small river which protected him from the enemy. Young Bruce, who had already given many proofs of his aspiring genius, but who served hitherto in the English army, appeared on the opposite banks, and distinguishing the Scottish chief, as well by his majestic port as by the intrepid activity of his behaviour, called out to him, and desired a short conference. Here he represented to Wallace the fruitless and ruinous enterprise in which he was engaged, and endeavoured to bend his inflexible spirit to submission, under superior power and superior fortune. He insisted on the unequal contest between a weak state, deprived of its head and agitated by intestine discord, and a mighty nation, conducted by the ablest and most martial monarch of the age, and possessed of every resource either for protracting the war or for pushing it with vigor and activity, if the love of his country were his motive for perseverance, his obstinacy tended only to prolong her misery. If he carried his views to private grandeur and ambition, he might reflect that, even if Edward should withdraw his armies, it appeared from past experience that so many haughty nobles, proud with the preeminence of their families, would never submit to personal merit, whose superiority they were less inclined to regard as an object of admiration than as a reproach and injury to themselves. To these exhortations Wallace replied that, if he had hitherto acted alone, as the champion of his country, it was solely because no second or competitor, or what he rather wished, no leader, had yet appeared to place himself in that honourable station, that the blame lay entirely on the nobility, and chiefly on Bruce himself, who, uniting personal merit to dignity of family, had deserted the post which both nature and fortune, by such powerful calls, invited him to assume. That the Scots, possessed of such a head, would, by their unanimity and concord, have surmounted the chief difficulty under which they now laboured, and might hope, notwithstanding their present losses, to oppose successfully all the power and abilities of Edward. That heaven itself could not set a more glorious prize before the eyes either of virtue or ambition, than to join in one object, the acquisition of royalty with the defence of national independence and that is the interests of his country, no more than those of a brave man, could never be sincerely cultivated by a sacrifice of liberty. He himself was determined, as far as possible, to prolong not her misery, but her freedom, and was desirous that his own life, as well as the existence of the nation, might terminate, when they could no otherwise be preserved than by receiving the chains of a haughty victor. The gallantry of these sentiments, though delivered by an armed enemy, struck the generous mind of Bruce, the flame was conveyed from the breast of one hero to that of another. He repented of his engagements with Edward, and opening his eyes to the honourable path pointed out to him by Wallace, secretly determined to seize the first opportunity of embracing the cause, however desperate, of his oppressed country. 
The subjection of Scotland, notwithstanding this great victory of Edward, was not yet entirely completed. The English army, after reducing the southern provinces, was obliged to retire for want of provisions, and left the northern counties in the hands of the natives. The Scots, no less enraged at their present defeat than elated by their past victories, still maintained the contest for liberty, but being fully sensible of the great inferiority of their force, they endeavored, by applications to foreign courts, to procure to themselves some assistance. The supplications of the Scottish ministers were rejected by Philip, but were more successful with the court of Rome. Boniface, pleased with an occasion of exerting his authority, wrote a letter to Edward, exhorting him to put a stop to his oppressions in Scotland, and displaying all the proofs, such as they had probably been furnished him by the Scots themselves, for the ancient independence of that kingdom. Among other arguments hinted at above, he mentioned the treaty conducted and finished by Edward himself for the marriage of his son with the heiress of Scotland a treaty which would have been absurd had he been superior lord of the kingdom and had possessed by the feudal law the right of disposing of his ward in marriage he mentioned several other striking facts which fell within the compass of edward's own knowledge particularly that alexander when he did pay homage to the king openly and expressly declared in his presence that he swore fealty not for his crown but for the lands which he held in england and the pope's letter might have passed for a reasonable one had he not subjoined his own claim to be liege lord of scotland a claim which had not once been heard of but which with a singular confidence he asserted to be full entire and derived from the most remote antiquity the affirmative style which had been so successful with him and his predecessors in spiritual contests was never before abused after a more egregious manner in any civil controversy the reply which Edward made to Boniface's letter contains particulars no less singular and remarkable. He there proves the superiority of England by historical facts, deduced from the period of Brutus, the Trojan who, he said, founded the British monarchy in the age of Eli and Samuel. He supports his position by all the events which passed in the island before the arrival of the Romans, and after laying great stress on the extensive dominions and heroic victories of King Arthur, he vouchsafes at last to descend to the time of Edward the Elder, with which, in his speech to the states of Scotland, he had chosen to begin his claim of superiority. He asserts it to be a fact, notorious and confirmed by the records of antiquity, that the English monarchs had often conferred the kingdom of Scotland on their own subjects, had dethroned these vassal kings when unfaithful to them, and had substituted others in their stead. He displays with great pomp the full and complete homage which William had done to Henry the Second, without mentioning the formal abolition of that extorted deed by King Richard, and the renunciation of all future claims of the same nature. Yet this paper he begins with solemn appeal to the Almighty, the searcher of hearts for his own firm persuasion of the justice of his claim, and no less than a hundred and four barons, assembled in Parliament at Lincoln, concur in maintaining before the Pope under their seals the validity of these pretensions at the same time however they take care to inform boniface that though they had justified their cause before him they did not acknowledge him for their judge the crown of england was free and sovereign they had sworn to maintain all its royal prerogatives and would never permit the king himself were he willing to relinquish its independency 
That neglect, almost total, of truth and justice, which sovereign states discover in their transactions with each other, is an evil universal and inveterate, is one great source of the misery to which the human race is continually exposed, and it may be doubted whether, in many instances, it be found in the end to contribute to the interests of those princes themselves, who thus sacrifice their integrity to their politics. As few monarchs have lain under stronger temptations to violate the principles of equity than Edward in his transactions with Scotland, so never were they violated with less scruple and reserve. Yet his advantages were hitherto precarious and uncertain, and the Scots, once roused to arms and inured to war, began to appear a formidable enemy, even to this military and ambitious monarch. They chose John Cummin for their regent, and, not content with maintaining their independence in the northern parts, they made incursions into the southern counties, which Edward imagined he had totally subdued. John de Seagrave, whom he had left guardian of Scotland, led an army to oppose them, and lying at Roslyn, near Edinburgh, sent out his forces in three divisions, to provide themselves with forage and subsistence from the neighbourhood. One party was suddenly attacked by the regent and Sir Simon Fraser, and being unprepared was immediately routed and pursued with great slaughter. The few that escaped, flying to the second division, gave warning of the approach of the enemy, and were immediately led on to take revenge for the death of their countrymen. The Scots, elated with the advantage already obtained, made a vigorous impression upon them. The English, animated with a thirst of vengeance, maintained a stout resistance. The victory was long undecided between them, but at last declared itself entirely in favor of the former, who broke the English and chased them to the third division, now advancing with a hasty march to support their distressed companions. Many of the Scots had fallen in the first two actions. Most of them were wounded, and all of them extremely fatigued by the long continuance of the combat. Yet were they so transported with success and military rage, that, having suddenly recovered their order, and arming the followers of their camp with the spoils of the slaughtered enemy, they drove with fury upon the ranks of the dismayed English. The favorable moment decided the battle, which the Scots, had they met with steady resistance, were not long able to maintain. The English were chased off the field. Three victories were thus gained in one day, and the renown of these great exploits, seconded by the favorable dispositions of the people, soon made the regent master of all the fortresses in the south, and it became necessary for Edward to begin anew the conquest of the kingdom. The king prepared himself for this enterprise with his usual vigor and abilities. He assembled both a great fleet and a great army, and entering the frontiers of Scotland, appeared with a force which the enemy could not think of resisting in the open field. The English navy, which sailed along the coast, secured the army from any danger of famine. Edward's vigilance preserved it from surprises, and by this prudent disposition they marched victorious from one extremity of the kingdom to the other, ravaging the open country, reducing all the castles, and receiving the submissions of all the nobility, even those of Cummin, the regent. Edward, having completed his conquest, which employed him during the space of near two years, now undertook the more difficult work of settling the country, of establishing a new form of government, and of making his acquisition durable to the crown of England. He seems to have carried matters to extremity against the natives. He abrogated all the Scottish laws and customs. He endeavored to substitute the English in their place. He entirely raised or destroyed all the monuments of antiquity, such records or histories as had escaped his former search were now burnt or dispersed, 
and he hastened by two precipitate steps to abolish entirely the Scottish name, and to sink it finally in the English. Edward, however, still deemed his favorite conquest exposed to some danger so long as Wallace was alive, and being prompted both by revenge and policy, he employed every art to discover his retreat and become master of his person. At last that hardy warrior, who was determined amidst the universal slavery of his countrymen, still to maintain his independency, was betrayed into Edward's hands by Sir John Monteith, his friend, whom he had made acquainted with the place of his concealment. The king, whose natural bravery and magnanimity should have induced him to respect like qualities in an enemy, enraged at some acts of violence committed by Wallace during the fury of war, resolved to overawe the Scots by an example of severity. He ordered Wallace to be carried in chains to London, to be tried as a rebel and traitor, though he had never made submissions or sworn fealty to England, and to be executed on Tower Hill. This was the unworthy fate of a hero, who, through a course of many years, had, with signal conduct, intrepidity, and perseverance, defended, against a public and oppressive enemy, the liberties of his native country. But the barbarous policy of Edward failed on the purpose to which it was directed. The Scots, already disgusted at the great innovations introduced by the sword of a conqueror into their laws and government, were further enraged at the injustice and cruelty exercised upon Wallace, and all the envy which, during his lifetime, had attended that gallant chief, being now buried in his grave, he was universally regarded as the champion of Scotland and the patron of her expiring independency. The people, inflamed with resentment, were everywhere disposed to rise against the English government, and it was not long ere a new and more fortunate leader presented himself, who conducted them to liberty, to victory, and to vengeance. Robert Bruce, grandson of that Robert, who had been one of the competitors for the crown, had succeeded, by his grandfather's and father's death, to all their rights, and the demise of John Balliol, together with the captivity of Edward, eldest son of that prince, seemed to open a full career to the genius and ambition of this young nobleman. He saw that the Scots, when the title to their crown had expired in the males of their ancient royal family, had been divided into parties nearly equal between the houses of Bruce and Balliol, and that every incident which had since happened had tended to wean them from any attachment to the latter. The slender capacity of John had proved unable to defend them against their enemies. He had meanly resigned his crown into the hands of the conqueror. He had, before his deliverance from captivity, reiterated that resignation in a manner seemingly voluntary, and had in that deed thrown out many reflections extremely dishonorable to his ancient subjects, whom he publicly called traitors, ruffians, and rebels, and with whom he declared he was determined to maintain no further correspondence. He had, during the time of his exile, adhered strictly to that resolution, and his son, being a prisoner, seemed ill-qualified to revive the rights, now fully abandoned, of his family. Bruce, therefore, hoped that the Scots, so long exposed from the want of a leader to the oppressions of their enemies, would unanimously fly to his standard, and would seat him on the vacant throne, to which he brought such plausible pretensions. His aspiring spirit, inflamed by the fervor of youth, and buoyed up by his natural courage, saw the glory alone of the enterprise, or regarded the prodigious difficulties which attended it as the source only of further glory. 
the miseries and oppressions which he had beheld his countrymen suffer in their unequal contest, the repeated defeats and misfortunes which they had undergone, proved to him so many incentives to bring them relief, and conduct them to vengeance against the haughty victor. The circumstances which attended Bruce's first declaration are variously related, but we shall rather follow the account given by the Scottish historians, not that their authority is in general any wise comparable to that of the English, but because they may be supposed sometimes better informed concerning facts which so nearly interested their own nation. Bruce, who had long harbored in his breast the design of freeing his enslaved country, ventured at last to open his mind to John Cummin, a powerful nobleman with whom he lived in strict intimacy. He found his friend, as he imagined, fully possessed with the same sentiments, and he needed to employ no arts of persuasion to make him embrace the resolution of throwing off, on the first favorable opportunity, the usurped dominion of the English. But on the departure of Bruce, who attended Edward to London, Cummin, who either had all along dissembled with him, or began to reflect more coolly in his absence on the desperate nature of the undertaking, resolved to atone for his crime in assenting to this rebellion, by the merit of revealing the secret to the King of England. Edward did not immediately commit Bruce to custody, because he intended at the same time to seize his three brothers who resided in Scotland, and he contented himself with secretly setting spies upon him, and ordering all his motions to be strictly watched. A nobleman of Edward's court, Bruce's intimate friend, was apprised of his danger, but not daring, amidst so many jealous eyes, to hold any conversation with him, he fell on an expedient to give him warning, that it was full time he should make his escape. He sent him by his servant a pair of gilt spurs and a purse of gold, which he pretended to have borrowed from him, and left it to the sagacity of his friend to discover the meaning of the present. Bruce immediately contrived the means of his escape, and as the ground was at that time covered with snow, he had the precaution, it is said, to order his horses to be shod with their shoes inverted, that he might deceive those who should track his path over the open fields or crossroads through which he purposed to travel. He arrived in a few days at Dumfries in Annandale, the chief seat of his family interest, and he happily found a great number of the Scottish nobility there assembled, and among the rest John Cummin, his former associate. The noblemen were astonished at the appearance of Bruce among them, and still more when he discovered to them the object of his journey. He told them that he was come to live or die with them in defense of the liberties of his country, and hoped with their assistance to redeem the Scottish name from all the indignities which it had so long suffered from the tyranny of their imperious masters, that the sacrifice of the rights of his family was the first injury which had prepared the way for their ensuing slavery, and by resuming them, which was his firm purpose, he opened to them the joyful prospect of recovering from the fraudulent usurper their ancient and hereditary independence, that all past misfortunes had proceeded from their disunion, and they would soon appear no less formidable than of old to their enemies. If they now deigned to follow into the field their rightful prince, who knew no medium between death and victory, that their mountains and their valor, which had during so many ages protected their liberty from all the efforts of the Roman Empire, would still be sufficient, were they worthy of their generous ancestors, to defend them against the utmost violence of the English tyrant, that it was unbecoming men, born to the most ancient independence known in Europe, to submit to the will of any masters, 
but fatal to receive those who, being irritated by such persevering resistance, and inflamed with the highest animosity, would never deem themselves secure in their usurped dominion, but by exterminating all the ancient nobility, and even all the ancient inhabitants. And that, being reduced to this desperate extremity, it were better for them at once to perish like brave men, with swords in their hands, than to dread long, and at last undergo the fate of the unfortunate Wallace, whose merits in the brave and obstinate defence of his country were finally rewarded by the hands of an English executioner. End of section 15, chapter 13, part 7.